Our scripture reading for the sermon this morning comes from the book of Romans, in chapter 8. Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians living in Rome, whom he had never visited at the point that he wrote the letter. But he wanted to explain himself to them and to invite them to participate in his mission. And he explains himself in part by giving a lengthy explanation of his understanding that the Lord had led him to of the state of man and God's relationship with us and the salvation that he's offered. And he sort of builds his case for five, six, seven chapters and climaxes in chapter eight uh, with his understanding of God's grace. And this is part of what he says there. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Nathaniel. Uh, We have had a good series this summer called The Gospel-Centered Life, and uh, this is a standalone message by itself. Next week, we're going to start the book of Exodus, so I hope you begin to start reading in that uh, tremendous book. And this standalone message this morning is on the subject of adoption. And so uh, if you would join me for just a moment, and let's, uh, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Will you join me? Our Father, thank you for this extraordinary topic. Uh, May you speak to us where we are really living uh, life. Father, may this not just be church talk, preacher stuff on a Sunday morning. I ask you to help me. Help me to speak your word and that what is true about what is said will remain deeply within us and that by faith we will access it many, many times Thank you for your good grace among us, and uh, continue that through your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, just touching down Romans 8, uh, this passage here uh, through verses uh, 12 through, make sure I get this right, 12 through 17 here in Romans 8. Um, We have so many options today in modern life. It's an amazing world we live in. Modern life promises us so many things. So many promises are held out to us. If you're bored just watching TV, you can, you're just one click away from a, from a better channel. Uh, if you have an ache, there's a pill to help you. Um, there's experts. If you have children with your problem with your children, you have an expert to turn to. We have techniques and things to purchase So many things are available to us in this modern world. But I have to confess, and I think I'm speaking on your behalf as well, with all our options, with all that we have before us, by way of options, we're still anxious. 
Americans in particular are an anxious people, worry. Uh, we are not finding happiness. Uh, we have many, many advances, extraordinary advances in medical science. I'm, th- I'm thankful for them. But we as a people are not growing in happiness and contentment. Um, in fact, uh, we try to manage and control many things. We are multitasking. We have a lot to remember. And yet, uh, what happens when our lives fall apart? What happens when we can't keep it together? What happens when your neatly ordered world, and it's not bad to have a neatly ordered world, probably a good, good goal. What happens, though, when your neatly ordered world falls apart? There's usually a cry of the heart at that moment. Don't you agree? Usually at that point, some, we say something, maybe not out loud, but inwardly. There's a deep cry that happens. It's related to our identity. It's related to what we think should happen to us. It's a cry. Largely, if you're a Christian here today, it's a cry of the flesh. The flesh is that fallen part of us. There's really two kinds of cries for the Christian. There's kind of the cry of the flesh, the cry of the flesh, which is self-oriented, and it's sort of the cry of the orphan. I have no one else. I have no one else to turn to. Or there's the cry of the Spirit. And so in this passage, we learn about this cry of the Spirit. And if you like condensed things like Reader's Digest, if you like things that are compact and put together, you'll like this passage. And, and uh, Romans tw- uh, 8, 12 through 17, is really like a mini version of the Christian life. It's all right there. Uh, in the pulpit, I need to come up with fresh stories, and I realize that, uh, that I need to do that. But I am aware of, uh, of something that happened to me, and I've used this recently. I think it was about a year ago. And if you've heard this, uh, just nod your head as if it's brand new. Uh, but uh, there, there, just so, you could, so I can, um, if you struggle with, uh, well, with identity, with, who, with peace, with anxiousness. Um, I, I, I identify with you, and I, I want to show you a story to get us started. Um, I was in Pennsylvania a couple years ago attending a conference for Christian counselors, and I started the trip with about $80 cash on me, and I thought that would be enough. And Marianne and I have never got our bank card up and going to use ATMs. We, we just haven't done that. Maybe we should do this. I really don't even know why. So I'm at this conference, and I think, well, uh, I'm watching eight bucks here, nine bucks here. I remember buying some AAA batteries, and they were really expensive for this little recording device I have. And I'm watching this 80 bucks, and it kind of, as the conference goes along, and again, a little tip here, and there was a a mall across the street that didn't help, you know. And I'm, slowing, I'm slowly going through this cash. Now, here's the scenario of the, the conference. I leave actually a day early because I want to get to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is about 100 miles away. And I'm speaking at a PCA church there, and it's the church where Chris Perrin goes to, uh, to church. He has come out here and consulted with our school. And he had uh, got away from me. To, he invited me to preach in his church. So uh, I leave on that Saturday morning, and I'm... I'm 
I, I'm packing up my stuff, and then I realize I have about 12 bucks left. I'm, and I, I go down and talk to the uh, hotel staff, because on my, my phone I can see that all these toll roads going out to Harrisburg. <laughs> and, and I grew up in Southern California where we don't have toll roads. Uh, Californians don't know where the money comes from to build these roads, but it didn't come from us. <laughs> so who paid for these roads? We don't know and we don't care. So, but in the East Coast, they want to make sure you remember who pays for these roads. <laughs> so I asked the hotel staff, I said, now there's, there's got to be like some side road, some country road, some dirt road. How can, there, how can there only be toll roads? And they look at me like, there's only toll roads. That can't be real. That can't be true. I'm, uh, by the way, I'm always trying to skirt reality, you know? So I'm thinking, how am I going to make it to this church? My goodness, I've only got 100 miles to drive, but I can't make it there. They said, yeah, it's going to be about 20 bucks. You, you go 10 bucks one way, 10 bucks. You're going back to Philly Airport? Yeah, yeah, you need at least 20 bucks. I'm thinking I could sell my shoes. Uh, my watch might be worth something. And the other contributing factor that sort of brought about my anxiousness and I was in Pennsylvania in November, and it looked like the Soviet Union, Moscow. There was no sun. I thought I was in somewhere in Siberia. I hadn't seen the sun in days. And sometimes when you're on the East Coast, if you live in Hawaii, it feels like you're in Bulgaria. It, it just feels so far away. So I'm here, and I'm watching my world. It's like a trap door opened up, and I, uh, I just fell apart. I looked cool on the outside, but there was a cry rising up in my heart. I'm alone, I'm desperate, and I don't have enough cash. I'm in a conference where there's a thousand Christian counselors. I might find one friend among them, don't you think? But I don't think so. I'm, it took me an hour to, to think this through. Who do I really know here? I know a few people, but uh, then it dawns on me. Steve Burlew. Steve Burlew, I, he, in fact, came out with Chris Perrin, and he and his wife came out, and uh, Robin Burlew actually has been a Christian, a, a, a head of school for a Christian school. Steve Burlew is here. He represents a publishing house. Steve Burlew. I'm going to go up to Steve Burlew. Steve, how are you? Good to, good to meet you. Steve. You remember me? Yeah, Todd, how are you doing? Steve, I need some money. <laughs> I know you need money from me to buy your books, but I need money from you. I need 20 bucks. This is so embarrassing. Big, bright smile comes over him. Extraordinary smile. This glow of glorious grace just flows out of him. He says, you mean I get to speak and teach? I mean, it was, I get to uh, tap into one of your needs today? You mean I get to be used of God today to help you? He stretches it out, you know. Of course, and he hands me 20 bucks. And I said, Steve, now listen, what's your address? I'll pay you back. And he's like, ridiculous, ridiculous. You see, I had fallen through a trap door and my world was spinning in turmoil. For some of you, you think this would be no big deal. But for me, it was, like, it was like asking someone for their car. It was crazy. I live in a world of deep shoulds and oughts. And the big message to me is you're a grown up. You should plan better. You should have your act together. A cry of condemnation came out of me. You should be more grown up than this. Don't you understand you need 
to anticipate these kinds of things better. That Sunday night, I did make it to Philly Airport and I flew out. And I looked at this sunset that just seemed to stay in, the, stay in the sky forever and ever. And I was looking out the window of the plane and looking down this extraordinary sunset. And down below in the mix of those tiny lights and small towns and farms in Pennsylvania was a man named Steve who reminded me of God's resources toward me. What caused Steve to hear my request, to grant it, to not be bothered by it, to not care about his own needs? Steve was led by the Spirit to believe that God's resources toward him would be sufficient. And the cry of his heart was, of course. The cry of my heart was, how could you let this happen? His, his, the cry of his heart was, there are resources, abundant resources for you. And my cry was, there's nothing for me. What is the cry of your heart when it feels like your life falls apart? What's, what's moving inside you, really and truly? What is happening in you? I could have sat down. If you gave me a quiz on theology, then in the middle of all that, I could have done pretty well. But that isn't really the, the real world that I live in. I live in a practical, I live out of a practical theology. And at that moment, and maybe even for days, I was living in the flesh, relying on my own ability to plan well. How about you? Do you live in the world of the Father's unlimited resources and power? Or do you live in a world where there, has, there are no promises toward you only those things that you can manufacture inside you. They're promises that you make up for yourself. I want to talk about how active the Spirit is. And so the first thing I want to share is that the Spirit is active through putting to death this flesh that, rem- that remains with us. The Spirit is active. Here's the gospel logic of the Apostle Paul, verse 12 of chapter 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here, it's interesting, is that you, Christian, are involved here. For much of Romans, you've been passive, watching God do all the work. And now you are deeply involved, and Paul, in his own logical way, reasoning, saying you have left the realm of the flesh, Christian. You have hitched your wagon to Jesus Christ. Now... No longer live as if you must respond to these old impulses. These must die. I have a compulsion. I have a default way of thinking. And that is that I have the resources within myself. I don't need God. I don't have God. And maybe even God is not necessary at this moment. That's really a theology of the flesh. I have only my words, my attitude, my response. And for some of us, uh, we we may feel free to speak our mind at that moment. Someone has messed with our world. We can put people in, in their place. We can let others know how they have spoiled our plans. Our needs appear to be so necessary, so overwhelming, and all of our needs are, they feel legitimate. In in the flesh, I never question my needs. I have no heavenly father. I'm an orphan. And I'm kind of this endless, bottomless need bucket. 
And it goes on and on and on. And Paul says, oh, you are no longer a debtor to that kind of life. You are now a debtor to the spirit and the spiritual life of God's abundance. I discovered at that moment in Pennsylvania that my functional savior was myself. And that was providing me comfort all along until that false savior failed. And I think if you're a Christian here today, I think God is after your false saviors. Do you feel him pressing in on you? Do you feel these ways of living that are apart from the gospel? Do you feel them kind of, I don't know, falling apart a bit? I think God is after us. I think he actually wants us to despair of the flesh, to have a full, sickening taste of it, and to say, man, there's deep foolishness within me. I am wanting to be free. My prayer, as I started off that day when I didn't realize how little cash I had, it might have been like this. Lord, it perhaps should have been like this. Lord, I live in in an illusion. I create a mythology. I think I can hold my world together. I think I can control everything. I think like this all the time. Imagine a prayer like this. I think like a rebel against you. I'm anxious and I'm not too worried about it. It's good to grow and mature, and, but even in this, I, I want to grow and mature so I don't need you. I don't feel like I'm a debtor to you and the deliverance of Jesus Christ. I obey my old impulses. I obey these more than the promptings of your spirit. And I only learn when the cry of my heart is at the bottom of my experience. Shatter my illusion that I can take care of myself. Parents, do you get panicky in the car with your children? How do you communicate that they have, your children have a fatherly, caring, a caring fatherly God who is there? Young adults, are you in debt to the fallen impulses? Do you, do you feel like you must obey them? The spirit is active, and he's putting to death the deeds of the flesh. The flesh, by the way, will have momentary, will have moments of victory in it and over it, and will have m- moments of, of feeling defeat. The flesh will retain its power in us all our life. When we talk about the flesh, that's that residual effects of sin, the fallenness of our experience, the fallen mind and, and, and heart and affections. That's a place where we need to speak honestly as a church. Secondly, the spirit is active by replacing our old spirit with a new spirit. This is good news. Look at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The overall pattern of your life, verse 13. What direction is it going? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Notice God now is actively leading us. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, this is the spirit in us crying, 
Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God. Replacing this old spirit of bondage, self-reliance, orphan-like living, to this new cry of the heart, I have a heavenly father, I am, I am attached to him, I am bonded to him, I am in his family, and he has given me the spirit of God in me to cry out the affection of one who belongs to this new family. Isn't that extraordinary? It's interesting that Jesus used the phrase Abba, an intimate word meaning daddy, a very close Close, uh, a love word, a word between a father and a child. And Jesus used the word in the garden in Mark 14. He used the same phrase, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. One power is replacing another power. The power of the flesh is being replaced by the power of the Spirit. Are you encouraged by this? This is for your good. This is telling us how God has designed the Christian life he has put his very spirit in you, and there's a new power at work, and it's, cor- it's directly connected to the ascended Christ. And one particular work of the spirit is to bring the, the finished work of Jesus right to bear in our hearts that we would know our hope is anchored in heaven itself. We are attached to this Jesus forever. We have hitched our wagon to him. He, we are in union with this Christ, and the Spirit of God is now communicating. It's true. It's true. It's true. J.I. Packer says that our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. How about that? It's a most neglected subject, actually, in the church today. And he goes on to say that if, if this one doctrine is really the key to understanding what someone understands of Christianity, the old spirit says, I must make myself acceptable. I wonder how many of us are under that burden at work, even before our spouse. Just that sense of we're always uh, kind of continually on a date, you know, always having to prove our worth, our worthiness. The Spirit of God is witnessing to us that everything has been cleared between you and God, and you can call upon him as Father. There is no other religion in the world that claims that name for God. A PCA elder in Franklin, Tennessee, was driving downtown uh, and driving by the city buildings, and his seven- or eight-year-old son was in the car. And the son recognized one of those buildings, buildings, and he said, Daddy... That's where I was born. It wasn't a hospital. And the father hesitated to say something, thought about it. He knew it wasn't true. But then he thought, wait a minute, I know what's in my son's thinking. You see, the son remembered at about four years old, walking out of that courthouse. And that's where the adoption papers were finally put together. And that's where he walked out with his new family. And so he associated that courtroom with where he was born. But the Spirit of God does that for us, impressing upon us. Do you know where God did all the work to make you acceptable? He did it in the courtroom. He brought you before his law that rightly condemned you. The Spirit brings us to to our place of justification. We came into God's courtroom, and the law said, where is my death? You're a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. And we say, I have it through Jesus Christ. I have it. And the law says, 
then where is my perfection? You cannot appear before God's law without a perfect record. You're a son and daughter of Adam. Where is your perfect record? And you say, I have that too. I have that in Jesus Christ. And the law then backs down and disappears. And you walk out of that courtroom. And what's extraordinary about the doctrine of adoption is that the judge is now meeting you in a side room that looks like a living room. And the judge has taken off his robe. And the judge now is your heavenly father. He is your father. That, this is extraordinary. You are now sons and daughters of the living God. And the law is, does not play a, a role in your relationship with this heavenly father anymore. The law now can no longer condemn you. The flesh has its laws. The flesh has its shoulds and oughts. See? In other words, I was having a, I was having a fit with the law in, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania that day, right? I was beating myself up with, with my own law, right? I mean, it's not enough that God gives me his law, but I have my own, right? And so this is our condition, that we are law-oriented, and we think our Christian life is only as good as our current obedience. In other words, I don't know, I don't feel like praying to this Heavenly Father. I haven't been good. I haven't been obedient. So we're still thinking in terms of law, righteousness, when we feel good about ourselves, then we'll pray to God, after all, we've earned it. Am I the only one here? No, no, no. Anybody here? Good. Do you, see, do you see how we are? We are crying out, I want to know that I am accepted, I'm not an orphan, that I have someone who is with me, walking with me in my experiences. And God says, oh, I'm not only walking with you, I'm promising you the new heavens and the new earth. And God, through his spirit, is witnessing to our adoption. Though our faith is small, it is real. Though our trust fluctuates, he has not forsaken us. Though our performance is meager, the Father never looked at our performance anyway. He is moving in us to say something that is contrary to performance-based Christianity. It is that I am what I am, Surely and totally because of your grace, I call you Father because I have not earned it, but you have declared it so. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 12, is devoted to this entire subject of adoption. God has placed his spirit in us. He's placed his name upon us. We have access to the throne of grace with, this is the Westminster, boldness. We are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. We are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him, God's fatherly care, as a father, never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Why would Paul write to the the Roman Christians these ideas? Because Christians easily forget them. Thirdly, The Spirit is active by moving us to accept God's pattern of suffering to glory. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Oh, don't you wish Paul had stopped right there? Yes. Yeah? Provided 
We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, so now this is the test. This is the test of whether or not we have full identity with this Heavenly Father to the point that we would say, Heavenly Father, whatever your agenda is for me, I will accept it as good. I will not fight against it. I will, rep- I will be your image bearer on this earth. And I recognize as they came after your son, I will not be shocked that they come after me. I will not wallow in self-pity, but I will know that you are using this to solidify my identity, my identity in you. And this is for my good. Soren Kierkegaard was very concerned uh, some time ago in, um, in, in Europe, the Danish culture, that thought of itself as Christian. And he saw it as a diminished vitality. There was a serious doldrum that had come over the, the Danish people. They were Christian in name only. There was a nominal Christianity And modernity, the modern life, was now getting the best of them. They were drifting away from this vital relationship with the living God. And he tells the story, it's very interesting, in this book called A Sickness Unto Death, which I think I only understand about four pages out of 500. Um, He wrote uh, wrote a quarter, by hand, Soren Kierkegaard wrote a quarter million words in his lifetime. Amazing. Um, He writes this story in this book, A Sickness Unto Death, and here's how it goes. He, He tells us to imagine a day laborer living in a great kingdom, like a, a, someone who just works for the day, right? A poor man, and the day laborer never dreamed that the emperor knew he existed. He thought that he would be indescribably favored if he was just permitted to see the emperor once. Again, this is as a peasant, a poor man. Something he could relate to his children and grandchildren as the most important event of his life. But suppose, and Kierkegaard throws a twist in the story, suppose the emperor did something unexpected. If the emperor sent for him and told him He wanted him for his son-in-law. What then? And Kierkegaard goes on to say, quite humanly, the day laborer would be more or less puzzled, self-conscious, and embarrassed by it. He would, humanly speaking, find it very strange and bizarre that the emperor wanted to to make a fool of him, make him the laughingstock of the whole city. In this parable, the day laborer working in the countryside recognizes the high and exalted place of the emperor, an occasional encounter, listen carefully, an occasional encounter with the emperor would be delightful. But even enough so that the laborer could keep his own comfortable life, keep his friends, keep his identity, yet have it embellished by the honor of the emperor. Kierkegaard tells, that gives, gives us a thought about what the laborer is thinking. A little favor, that would make sense to the laborer. 
But then the laborer says this, such a thing is too high for me. I cannot grasp it. To be perfectly blunt, to me, it is a piece of folly. It's too much. The emperor has asked for too much of an identity change. Contemporary theologian Todd Billings writes on this story, and he says this, The prospect of adoption in this sense is an offense. Too much closeness. It is the sort of closeness that requires giving up one's own identity. Yes, it is a high and exalted place to be the child of the emperor, the king of the land, but it's too high and it's too exalted. Wouldn't he be a laughingstock? Wouldn't he lose all that is precious to him if he were to ascend to be the king's son? It would be wonderful if the king would send him some money or a letter to cherish as a relic. But the king is asking for so much more. The king is asking to be more than, than, than an accessory to his identity. The king wants his full identity, his full entire life. He wants him to be exalted, the child of the king. And so it is with our king and our God. And Billings goes on to say, yet adoption by this king is such a radical notion, we resist it. We would rather have an occasional brush of God's presence or a relic of his solidarity with us so that God can be an appendage of our identity. But God wants more than that. He wants our lives, our adopted identity. By bringing us into the new reality of the Spirit, we can call out to God, Abba, Father, as adopted children united to Christ. And there are few things that are more countercultural than the process of adoption, losing your life for the sake of Jesus Christ to find it in the communion of the triune God. See, brothers and sisters, you've been made an heir with Christ. And one of the things that God does is he uses this fallen world, troubles and hardships, to bring to you in those moments knowledge that you would not otherwise have. Testings that bring about a cry of the heart. And the question is, what cry of the heart arises from you consistently? I am cared for. I have a heavenly father. This is difficult. This is hard. I would not wish this. I would not want this. But it comes from my heavenly father's good hand. And it is for me to grow and to, to know that I have been made an heir of Christ. Move in us, Lord Jesus, through your spirit to prepare us for suffering. You see, the spirit is using this fallen world to create knowledge in us. It is precious knowledge. It's more important than some knowledge of some stock. It's more important of, of some knowledge of the future of the world. It is knowledge that's in you about your future hope of glory. The Spirit is using this fallen world to create knowledge, to testify to us that these hardships and suffering are working together for good. And you're in union with the living God. And you, through these, will be assured of glory itself. These momentary afflictions will not define you, but God will use them. 
That is the movement of the Spirit among us even today. May God produce in us this cry of the heart. Oh, Father, you are wise. Oh, Father, by your grace, I'm in your family. Oh, Father, I receive and accept this deep association with you. You are my identity. You care for me. Wherever I go, I know you are working for my good. Let's pray. Father, this is exciting stuff. Father, this is, this is news that we can use on a daily basis. And so, Lord, thank you for your change agenda. That this cry of the heart is a, it comes out of pain and hardship, but it is a cry that assures us that we are yours. So, Lord, help us bond together as fellow strugglers, as those who continue to, to battle the flesh, Father, we, we raise up to you our praise and thanksgiving this Sunday. We love you. Convince us of your love for us as this week unfolds. In Christ's name, amen.